0: Friends, welcome back to the show. In honor of this weekend, which was a special weekend, what was the Sunday, Adeline? Easter. In honor of Easter Sunday, you know what we're going to play? We're going to play. His podcast. Oh, this is the podcast. On the podcast, what are we playing? Your sermon. Yeah. What do you think is better, podcast or sermon? Sermon. Tag team. It's like favorite child. Like, it's hard to pick one. They're all favorites. Well, this Sunday. Oh, okay. okay. Well, there's that. Well, um, this week we're playing our. My, I don't know who's our. I preached about myself, but it was team effort. Oof, whatever. Anyway. Hey, guys, uh, thanks for listening. Here is Easter ser- sermon from uh, today. Uh, we'll be back with our regular interview schedules in the future.
1: Thank you for joining us on Resurrection Sunday. It is a day we celebrate some good news. And let me tell you, if you're visiting, you are at a good place to hear this great news. This is a good group of people. They're they're very welcoming. Let me tell you, from my personal experience, some 20 years ago, I was down in Austin on a weekend visiting my wife's family. We're just dating and she grew up at this church and we weren't planning to stay for church on Sunday. And so back in those days, I would never, ever go to church wearing jeans jeans. Things have changed, and so I needed to borrow a pair of khakis from someone. And so they reached out to someone from this church who happened to be my wife's uncle. And so Sunday morning, I drive over to borrow these pants I'm going to wear to church. And so I go to my wife's uncle's house, knock on the door, and he answers the door holding the pants that I will be wearing while he he himself was wearing no pants at all. (laughs) So I look at him and I say, thank you so much for these pants, which you clearly need more than me. But he's willing to share, and that's the kind of church Westover is. They'll give you the clothes right off their back, even if you wish it was still on their back. Also, if you're visiting, be careful. I was in your seat years ago, and now they make me be up here. So they will put you to work. Just be very careful. Very careful. The year was 2015, and a woman was in Chester, England, shopping at a store where she was picking out a dress that she was going to wear for her daughter's wedding. She finds a dress she likes. She takes a picture of it and she sends it to her daughter and says, I love this black and blue dress. It will be perfect for your wedding. And the daughter says, I like the dress, but it is not black and blue. And the mother says, yes, it is. And the daughter says, no, it's not. And so she takes the picture and posts it on her social media and tells her friends, I can't believe my mom thinks this dress is black and blue. Well, her friends hear about the dress and they get to the wedding a week later and they see her, the bride's mom wearing this dress, and they're divided as to what color the dress is that she's wearing. And so one of the friends, who happened to be the musician playing at the wedding, takes a picture of the dress and posts it on BuzzFeed. This is the picture that she shared back in 2015. Within one week, 10 million people tweeted about this dress, debating, is it black and blue, which noted color expert Taylor Swift said yes, Others said it was gold and white, like noted color expert Kim Kardashian. Lady Gaga even chimed in with the most Lady Gaga response when she said, actually, this dress is periwinkle and sand. I don't even know what that means. But millions of people saw this dress and debated what color it was. They saw the exact same evidence and information, but had vastly different stories As to what it actually was. Last month, there was another incident like that. There is an award show where Chris Rock makes a joke about Jaded Pickett Smith. Jaded Pickett Smith's husband, Will Smith, responds in a response I hope none of you go with this morning, walks on stage and smacks the person who tells the joke. Now, afterwards, everyone decides to share their opinion on social media, on the news, everywhere. And the thing is, There is a wide variety of responses to the exact same incident, which we all saw. We all saw the same incident, but there are multiple different stories that were told. Because this is human nature. We see something and we have our perspective and we have our story. You see something and you see your perspective and you tell your story. I see my perspective and so I tell my story. Humanity has been doing this for years. Since the greatest story to ever be told took place 2,000 years ago, people have been doing this. In our text for today from Matthew 28, we hear the story of the two Marys, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus. They're at the tomb to take care of the deceased body. An angel shows up and says, he is not here, he is risen. And then they're given the commission to go share this news. It's peculiar because in those days, a woman was not seen as a acceptable witness in the Jewish courts. And so it's peculiar that these women are called to share this story. But what was even more peculiar than who was sharing the story was the story that this person who was dead is now alive. He is no longer in the tomb. He is risen, which means he is who he said he was. He is who he said he was. It's peculiar. Now, for those of us who've lost someone that we love, we know the concept of someone still being with us. We, we can still feel their essence. We can hear their voice. We can imagine what they would say to us on this day if they were here. We can imagine that, but that's not the story of Jesus. That, that's not... What this story is. We could also imagine that two thousand years ago in the Roman culture that they didn't have the technological advances with science that we do. So maybe their their health care wasn't what we have, and so maybe Jesus was just really sick and they put him in a tomb and he was maybe in a coma and three days later he, he gets feeling better and so he walks out. But that's not the story either. I mean the Romans might not have been good at medicine like we are but they're pretty good at killing people that's that's not the story we're telling the story we're telling is that for our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate he suffered death and was buried spent 3 days in a tomb and 3 days later he was resurrected in accordance with scripture that's the story we tell But it's not the only story that was ever told about it. That's not the only story that was ever told about what transpired 2,000 years ago. About 150 years after Jesus was born, there's a Christian theologian named Justin Martyr, one of the early Christian leaders. And he has this interaction with a Jewish man who doesn't believe Jesus is who Jesus said he was. And Justin Martyr actually writes this interaction down in one of his books that came out 150 years after the time of Jesus. And this is the account of what that Jewish man said to Justin Martyr. Jesus' disciples, his disciples, stole him by night from the tomb. Where he was laid when unfastened from the cross. And now deceive men by asserting that he has risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. This was a story circulating a hundred plus years after Jesus was resurrected. But it didn't start then, it was already beginning to be disseminated even before jesus rose from the dead while jesus was still laying in the tomb this interaction happens according to matthew's gospel in matthew 27 this transpires the next day that is after the day of preparation the chief priests and the pharisees gathered before pilate and said sir we remember what that imposter said while he was still alive after three days i will rise again Therefore, command the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may go and steal him away and tell the people he has been raised from the dead, and the last deception would be worse than the first. They they say the disciples are going to fake all of this. And so, what you need to do is put guards to protect the tomb to make sure this doesn't happen. Well, guards end up being there, and what happened was exactly what was predicted to happen. And so afterwards, these group, this group gathers again. And t- chapter 28, Scripture says this. While they were going, disciples, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest everything that had happened. After the priest had assembled with the elders, they devised a plan to give a large sum of money to the soldiers, telling them, you must say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. So the religious leaders have a problem, and they decide to solve it the exact same way they tried to solve a problem before. Just as they needed someone to betray Jesus, so they paid Judas with silver, they now tried to buy off these guards so that they will tell a lie. Say that his body was taken, say it was stolen, say he was not risen, and say he wasn't who he said he was. Catholic theologian named Raymond E. Brown said that this is the anti gospel. He isn't risen, he isn't alive, he isn't who he said he was. The same story, the same evidence, the same information, but you have two different stories that were told. It's human nature. My father in law, for years, was a football coach here in the great state of Texas. And one afternoon, he was getting his middle school football team ready to go out for a game. And so he gathers them all up. They're in the locker room. The game is about to start. They're in the locker room. And so he gives them the pep talk. He looks at his athletes and said, if you had one shot, one opportunity to seize everything you have ever wanted, would you take it? And if so, this is how you take it. You get mentally ready. Get mentally ready. Get mentally ready ready. And so all the players are all excited. They're yelling and they run out of the locker room. They all do this except one who hangs around the very last. As soon as everyone's gone, he walks up to coach and says, Hey coach, you tell me who mentally is and I'll get him ready. (laughs) That young man became an explosive expert in the military. That's terrifying. It's hard to get mentally ready. I got married when I was 20 years old which is another way of saying I went to a Christian college. (laughs) and I don't know about you when you were 20, but when I was 20, I knew nothing, absolutely nothing at all. And so the idea of acknowledging the commitment I was making was way over my pay grade. Now, it worked out well for me. I don't know if it worked out as well for my wife, but nevertheless, she said yes, and so it's good for me. But at least for me, like you don't know the kind of commitment you're making at that point. You can't mentally count the cost of what you're signing up for. There's a story in which Jesus is talking with a rich young ruler who asks Jesus a question that maybe you have thought before. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response is, obey the commandments. Just, Just do what you were told. And the rich young ruler is feeling pretty good about himself. He says... I have kept the commandments since I was a boy. And then Jesus looks at him, and scripture says, Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, you lack one thing, go sell everything that you have and give it away. And the man went away heartbroken because he had a lot. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, if you want to inherit eternal life, this is the cost for you. You must give it all away. And the cost was too much. And we're all counting the cost. Now, I I know we like to think, I like to think especially, that I make good logical decisions, not swayed or influenced by feelings or emotions. But that's not really how any of us work. We are far more susceptible to emotions and feelings than maybe we want to admit. There's a psychologist named Jonathan Haidt who uses the metaphor of a press secretary. And he says, when it comes to decision-making, our logic functions like a press secretary who explains why that decision was great and the right thing to be made, but it was rarely ever actually a part of the decision-making process. We'll rationalize it. Like, I'll tell you why spending $56 at Whataburger at 1 a.m. was a good decision, but logic had nothing to do with that decision being made. David Hume, the Scottish philosopher, said that logic is the slave of passions. When we make decisions, there's a lot that goes into it. It's far more than just logic and reason that make us do what we do. So in the first century, there are two gospels being told. He is risen, he is alive, he is who he says he is. And the other one that says he isn't alive, he wasn't resurrected, he isn't who he said he was. Both groups saw the same evidence in the same event, but they tell different stories. And I imagine the religious leaders who tell the anti-gospel are getting an assessment of the cost. They're trying to get mentally ready to, to tell the story, but this story is too hard to tell because it costs them too much. There's too much that will go into it for them if this is the story. The Roman centurion standing next to Jesus goes, yeah, this, this truly is the Son of God. He sees the evidence and changes his story. But the religious leaders, they haven't been willing to do this all along. There was a story earlier in the life of Jesus in which Jesus resurrects a man named Lazarus. And the religious leaders want nothing to do with this. Watch them count the cost in John 11 after the story of Lazarus. So the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the council and said, what are we to do? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. They count the cost and they go, this is too much, so we're going to tell a different story about what's happening. The English theologian G.K. Chesterton said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. We look at the cost and go, this, it's, it's too much. If this is the truth, and maybe I want my own version of the truth. That's a little bit easier for me. I mean, one of the ways that information is spread in our country is spread in such a way that if you want to hold on to your opinions and your ideas, all you have to do is to change the channel or listen to a different source, and they'll eventually tell you exactly what you already want to believe. We do this with this story, too. Because the story of Jesus being alive and being resurrected and being who he says he is will cost you. It'll cost you everything. Because if he is who he says he is, that means you are who he says you are. If Jesus is who he says he is, that means you are who Jesus says you are. Which means there are parts of your life that you don't get a hold on to. Your guilt and your shame, Jesus says, you don't get to keep that. I'm going to take that from you. Jesus says, your fear about the future, you don't get to keep that. I'm going to take that from you. Jesus says, you don't get to hold on to your sense of independence and autonomy. I'm going to take that from you as well. Your worry, I I want that. Your shame, I want that. How you treat people who wrong you, I want that. The way you view money, I want that. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, it means you are who he says you are. And it costs you a lot. And so you have to experience the goodness to pay that price. you got to experience it. I don't know if you've ever had this conversation, but you're talking to someone from up north, and they're, they're confused, or maybe they're a little jealous about why everyone is moving to Austin, Texas. Like, how come no one wants to move where I live? Like, well, why, why are people moving to Austin, and you try... You try to explain them, like, what's so wonderful about Austin? It's beautiful. It's great here. I mean, their food is wonderful. Texas barbecue, Mexican food. And they interrupt and they go, you know, we have, we've got barbecue and Mexican food up here in Minnesota, too. And you're like, just stop, please. Be silent before the Lord before you sin. Just stop. And you try to explain, no, seriously, this is what barbecue is supposed to be like. This is what Mexican, no, 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 we know what it's like. And you're like, just just stop I guess you just have to try it for yourself you just got to experience it to really understand it and the things in life that truly matter the most like barbecue and Mexican food you have to experience and maybe even the things that are a little bit more important you got to experience because you can't just describe them how do you describe what what beauty is How do you describe what what grace feels like? What words would you use to explain what love is? I could talk for hours and write thousands of words, but I never could explain the feeling I feel when my daughter falls asleep on my chest. I can never do it. And if somehow those words made you experience it, it only happens for one reason. Because you've experienced the love like that in your own life the things that matter the most you have to experience christianity is a religion not about a a a set of ideas that we all hold together christianity is not a, a set of ideas that we can all okay this is exactly what i think christianity is a religion built around a shared experience of jesus What we're here for is not because we all can explain everything exactly the same way. I mean, the four Gospels don't even do it all the exact same way. But they all share what we share, and that is an experience of Jesus. Because if you have ideas independent of the experience, you end up just like the religious leaders. Because if you just have a set of ideas, the ideas will induce fear in you because they cost a lot. They expect you to give up everything Ideas independent of experience lead to just fear. But if you have the experience, you can have both fear and joy together. Let's go back to Matthew 28. and verse 8, look what the two Marys leave with. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy. They have have fear because they know this costs them something. But they have joy also. And joy, as Christianity teaches us, is A byproduct of being connected to God. Paul will say the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Joy is a fruit of being connected to God. These women have experienced who God is in the person of Jesus. And so they have fear yet because it's going to cost them a lot, but they also have joy because they've experienced who God is. And the story of Easter, it's not just an idea for you to hold because people can have different ideas about it. It's an invitation for you to experience the resurrection. Not just to know about, but to experience it. And if you do, it it will change you. Like it's changed literally millions and billions of people. There's this old story about a preacher who's at uh, another church visiting. And he preaches that morning. And at the end of his sermon, a woman decides that she wants to get baptized. And so this church is set up in which there's two changing areas next to the baptistry. Each of them have stairs that lead down into the baptismal pool. And so he gets changed in his side and then she gets changed on her side. And then he walks down and she walks down, and they meet in the baptistry right in the middle. She gets baptized. And then as the baptismal stairs can do, they get a little bit slippery. And so this gentleman decides he's going to help this woman walk up the stairs. And so he helps her walk up, get to her changing room. Well, at that point, the service continues, the next song starts, and so he's in a quandary. He needs to get to the other side of the baptismal pool, but the song is going, and he doesn't want to interrupt the service. And so he makes a very calculated business decision. He gets down next to the baptismal pool, holds his breath, and tries to swim through. The only problem is he didn't realize that it was a glass baptismal pool. And so there he is looking like a lobster at the front of a seafood restaurant, just right? Like right there. Because you can't go back, right? You just can't go back. Here, here's a, an ancient baptismal pool from uh, North Africa, where much of Christianity comes from. And what's unique about this baptismal pool for us to see, which is actually very common for many ancient baptismal pools, is there are stairs on both sides. And so you walk down the one side You're baptized. You participate in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Your old self dies and you are resurrected a new person. And then you walk out the other side a new person. You you can't go back the way you came in because something has happened in you and now you're a different person. The old is gone and now you are new because you've experienced the resurrection. It's not just ideas that you have. It's an experience that you've been through. And it changes you. And I get the story of the resurrection. It is is extremely difficult to explain. Because here's the story that the creator of the universe, the universe which is billions of years old, yet it continues to expand. Let me say that again. The universe is billions of years old, but somehow it's expanding still. Yet the creator of the universe becomes a little baby boy who grows up, lives a sinless life, dies, lives and dies, and then three days later he is resurrected and overcomes sin and death. That is a hard idea to rationally explain to anyone. But if you've experienced it, if you've experienced it, if you have experienced if you do not just know about it, but you've known it in your own soul, it can change you. There's a story in the Gospels where a man has a child who's sick, comes to Jesus, would you do something, would you please heal my kid? And Jesus says, for those who believe, anything is possible. And the man says, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, but, but help my unbelief. And I assume that he's not the only one to ever feel that way. Yeah, I believe. I want to believe. It's an aspirational statement. I want to believe, but would you please help my unbelief? Now, if that's you this morning, I think Jesus has a word for you. If you want to believe, Jesus will meet you where you are. But you've got to open yourself up to experience it. You've got to open yourself up to experience it. It's kind of like setting an alarm clock to watch the sunrise. You set your alarm clock in the morning so you want to see the sun rise. But n- no one actually thinks that your alarm clock causes the sun to rise. No one thinks the sun is like, hey, what do I do? Oh, yeah, yeah, alarm clock. That's what I do. I come. No one thinks that. But your alarm clock wakes you up so that you can be open and available to the transcendent beauty that has always been there. When we put ourselves in positions like this, being in church this morning. When you hear scripture, when you receive the sacraments, when you make declarations in song to God, you open yourself up to experience the transcendent beauty of the resurrection. You put yourself in the presence of God and let the power of God change you. There's this crazy line at the end of Matthew 28 where they finally gather back together. They've gone where Jesus told them to go and watch what the disciples do. This is 28 verse 15 through 17. So they took the money and did as were directed, and this story is still told among the Jews to this day. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So the whole group gets there. They've done what Jesus said. They arrive, and all the evidence is right in front of them. It's Jesus right there, and you have some people who worship and some people who doubt. And I don't think the significance... Is the response as much as the location? Because for some, like this is just a hard story to stomach. And for others, it just comes naturally. It makes sense. But the point is that they both arrived at the presence of God. They're saying, I believe, help my unbelief. Because they showed up in the presence of God and trusted that the presence of God can change them. This morning, I. I know each and every one of us needs something from the presence of God. Eugene O'Neill, one of his plays, has this line. He says, Man is born broken. He lives by mending. The grace of God is glue. Man is born broken. He lives by mending. The grace of God is glue. Each and every one of us has experienced brokenness. The last couple of years, in pronounced ways, we've lost those that we've loved. We've lost part of ourselves that we thought we'd never lose. We felt abandoned. We felt scared. We became aware that there's sin in the world, but not just out in the world, but there's sin within me. We've become face-to-face with our own brokenness, but the power of the resurrection is this glue which can put each and every one of us back together. Because it's not just an idea to hold on to, it's an experience for us to step into. So may you remember the resurrection isn't just an idea, but it's a power that can change you. And that whatever brokenness you have, it can be the glue that can put you back together. Because if Jesus is who he said he was, that means you too can be who he says you are. And what he says about you That you are my beloved daughter, and you're my beloved son. He says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so have your sins been forgiven. And he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. So don't let your hearts be worried or troubled. He says, you are of so much immeasurable worth that I'm willing to die for you. He communicates that God so loved the world that he is willing to give his only begotten son, that anyone who believes in him shall not die, but have everlasting life. And because what Jesus said about himself is true, those things are also true about you.